The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Man Who Knew Too Much by G. K. Chesterton. Read by Martin Clifton. Chapter 1. The Face in the Target. Harold March, the rising reviewer and social critic, was walking vigorously across a great tableland of moors and commons, the horizon of which was fringed with the far-off woods of the famous estate of Torwood Park. He was a good-looking young man in tweeds with very pale curly hair and pale clear eyes. Walking in wind and sun in the very landscape of liberty, he was still young enough to remember his politics and not merely try to forget them. For his errand at Torwood Park was a political one. It was the place of appointment named by no lesser person than the Chancellor of the Exchequer, Sir Howard Horne, then introducing his so-called socialist budget, and prepared to expand it in an interview with so promising a penman. Harold March was the sort of man who knows everything about politics, and nothing about politicians. He also knew a great deal about arts, letters, philosophy, and general culture, about almost everything, indeed, except the world he was living in. Abruptly, in the middle of those sunny and windy flats, he came upon a sort of cleft, almost narrow enough to be called a crack in the land. It was just large enough to be the watercourse for a small stream which vanished at intervals under green tunnels of undergrowth, as if in a dwarfish forest. Indeed, he had an odd feeling, as if he were a giant looking over the valley of the pygmies. When he dropped into the hollow, however, the impression was lost. The rocky banks, though hardly above the height of a cottage, hung over and had the profile of a precipice. As he began to wander down the course of the stream in idle but romantic curiosity, and saw the water shining in short strips between the great grey boulders and bushes as soft as great green mosses, he fell into quite an opposite vein of fantasy. It was rather as if the earth had opened and swallowed him into a sort of underworld of dreams. And when he became conscious of a human figure dark against the silver stream, sitting on a large boulder and looking rather like a large bird, it was perhaps with some of the premonitions proper to a man who meets the strangest friendship of his life. The man was apparently fishing, or at least was fixed in a fisherman's attitude with more than a fisherman's immobility. March was able to examine the man, almost as if he had been a statue, for some minutes before the statue spoke. 
He was a tall, fair man, cadaverous and a little lackadaisical, with heavy eyelids and a high-bridged nose. When his face was shaded with his wide white hat, his light moustache and lithe figure gave him a look of youth. But the Panama lay on the moss beside him, and the spectator could see that his brow was prematurely bald, and this, combined with a certain hollowness about the eyes, had an air of headwork or even headache. But the most curious thing about him, realised after a short scrutiny, was that, though he looked like a fisherman, he was not fishing. He was holding, instead of a rod, something that might have been a landing net which some fishermen use, but which was much more like the ordinary toy net which children carry and which they generally use indifferently for shrimps or butterflies. He was dipping this into the water at intervals, gravely regarding its harvest of weed or mud and emptying it out again. "'No, I haven't caught anything,' he remarked calmly, as if answering an unspoken query. "'What I do have, I throw it back again, especially the big fish. But some of the little beasts interest me when I get them. "'A scientific interest, I suppose,' observed March. "'Of a rather amateurish sort, I fear,' answered the strange fisherman. "'I have a sort of hobby about what they call phenomena of phosphorescence. But it would be rather awkward to go about in society carrying stinking fish.' "'I suppose it would,' said March, with a smile. "'Rather odd to enter a drawing-room carrying a large luminous cod,' continued the stranger, in his listless way. "'How quaint it would be if one could carry it about like a lantern, or have little sprats for candles. "'Some of the sea-beasts would really be very pretty, like lampshades, the blue sea-snail that glitters all over like starlight, and some of the red starfish really shine like red stars, but naturally I'm not looking for them here.' March thought of asking him what he was looking for, but feeling unequal to a technical discussion, at least as deep as the deep-sea fishes, he returned to more ordinary topics. "'Delightful sort of hole this is,' he said, "'this little dell and river here. It's like those places Stevenson talks about, where something ought to happen.' "'I know,' answered the other. "'I think it's because the place itself, so to speak, seems to happen, and not merely to exist.' Perhaps that's what old Picasso and some of the Cubists are trying to express, by angles and jagged lines. Look at that wall, like low cliffs that juts forward just at right angles to the slope of turf sweeping up to it. That's like a silent collision. It's like a breaker or the backwash of a wave. March looked at the low-browed crag overhanging the green slope and nodded. He was interested in a man who turned so easily from the technicalities of science to those of art and asked him if he admired the new angular artists. "'As I feel it, the cubists are not cubist enough,' replied the stranger. "'I mean, they're not thick enough. By making things mathematical, they make them thin. Take the living lines out of that landscape, simplify it to a right angle, and you flatten it out to a mere diagram on paper. Diagrams have their own beauty, but it is of just the other sort. They stand for the unalterable things, the calm, eternal, mathematical sort of truths.' what somebody calls the white radiance of... He stopped, and before the next word came, something had happened almost too quickly and completely to be realised. From behind the overhanging rock came a noise and rush like that of a railway train, and a great motor-car appeared. It topped the crest of the cliff, black against the sun like a battle-chariot rushing to destruction in some wild epic. March automatically put out his hand in one futile gesture, as if to catch a falling teacup in a drawing-room. 
For the fraction of a flash it seemed to leave the ledge of rock like a flying ship. Then the very sky seemed to turn over like a wheel, and it lay a ruin amid the tall grasses below, a line of grey smoke going up slowly from it into the silent air. A little lower the figure of a man with grey hair tumbled down the steep green slope, his limbs lying all at random, and his face turned away. The eccentric fisherman dropped his net and walked swiftly toward the spot, his new acquaintance following him. As they drew near, there seemed a sort of monstrous irony in the fact that the dead machine was still throbbing and thundering as busily as a factory, while the man lay so still. He was unquestionably dead. The blood flowed in the grass from a hopelessly fatal fracture at the back of the skull. But the face, which was turned to the sun, was uninjured and strangely arresting in itself. It was one of those cases of a strange face so unmistakable as to feel familiar. We feel somehow that we ought to recognise it, even though we do not. It was of the broad, square sort, with great jaws, almost like that of a highly intellectual ape. The wide mouth shut so tight as to be traced by a mere line, the nose short with the sort of nostrils that seemed to gape with an appetite for the air. The oddest thing about the face was that one of the eyebrows was cocked up at a much sharper angle than the other. March thought he had never seen a face so naturally alive as that dead one, and its ugly energy seemed all the stranger for its halo of hoary hair. Some papers lay half fallen out of the pocket, and from among them March extracted a card-case. He read the name on the card aloud. Sir Humphrey Turnbull. I'm sure I've heard that name somewhere. His companion only gave a sort of little sigh, and was silent for a moment, as if ruminating. Then he merely said, "'The poor fellow is quite gone,' and added some scientific terms, in which his auditor once more found himself out of his depth. "'As things are,' continued the same curiously well-informed person, "'it will be more legal for us to leave the body as it is until the police are informed. In fact, I think it will be well if nobody except the police is informed.' Don't be surprised if I seem to be keeping it dark from some of our neighbours round here. Then, as if prompted to regularise his rather abrupt confidence, he said, I've come down to see my cousin at Torwood. My name is Horn Fisher. Might be a pun on my pottering about here, mightn't it? Is Sir Howard Horn your cousin? asked March. I'm going to Torwood Park to see him myself. Only about his public work, of course, and the wonderful stand he is making for his principles. I think this budget is the greatest thing in English history. If it fails, it will be the most heroic failure in English history. Are you an admirer of your great kinsman, Mr. Fisher? Rather, said Mr. Fisher, he's the best shot I know. Then, as if sincerely repentant of his nonchalance, he added, with a sort of enthusiasm, No, but really he's a beautiful shot. As if fired by his own words, he took a sort of leap at the ledges of the rock above him and scaled them with a sudden agility in startling contrast to his general lassitude. He had stood for some seconds on the headland above, with his aquiline profile under the Panama hat relieved against the sky, and peering over the countryside, before his companion had collected himself sufficiently to scramble up after him. The level above was a stretch of common turf on which the tracks of the fated car were ploughed plainly enough but the brink of it was broken as with rocky teeth. Broken boulders of all shapes and sizes lay near the edge. 
it was almost incredible that anyone could have deliberately driven into such a death-trap, especially in broad daylight. "'I can't make head or tail of it,' said March. "'Was he blind or blind drunk?' "'Neither, by the look of him,' replied the other. "'Then it was suicide.' "'It doesn't seem a cosy way of doing it,' remarked the man called Fisher. "'Besides, I don't fancy poor old Puggy would commit suicide somehow.' "'Poor old who?' inquired the wondering journalist. "'Did you know this unfortunate man?' "'Nobody knew him exactly,' replied Fisher, with some vagueness. "'But one knew him, of course. "'He'd been a terror in his time, in Parliament and the courts, and so on, "'especially in that row about the aliens who were deported as undesirables "'when he wanted one of them hanged for murder. "'He was so sick about it that he retired from the bench. "'Since then he mostly motored about by himself.' But he was coming to Torwood too for the weekend, and I don't see why he should deliberately break his neck almost at the very door. I believe Hoggs, I mean my cousin Howard, was coming down specially to meet him. Torwood Park doesn't belong to your cousin, inquired March. No, it used to belong to the Winthrops, you know, replied the other. Now a new man's got it, a man from Montreal named Jenkins. Hoggs comes for the shooting. I told you he was a lovely shot. This repeated eulogy on the great social statesman affected Harold March as if somebody had defined Napoleon as a distinguished player of nap, but he had another half-formed impression struggling in this flood of unfamiliar things, and he brought it to the surface before it could vanish. Jenkins, he repeated, surely you don't mean Jefferson Jenkins, the social reformer, I mean the man who's fighting for the new cottage estate system. It would be as interesting to meet him as any cabinet minister in the world, if you will excuse me saying so. Yes, Hoggs told him it would have to be cottages, said Fisher. He said the bread of cattle had improved too often, and people were beginning to laugh. And, of course, you must hang a peerage onto something, though the poor chap hasn't got it yet. Hello, here's somebody else. They had started walking in the tracks of the car, leaving it behind them in the hollow, still humming horribly like a huge insect that had killed a man. The tracks took them to the corner of the road, one arm of which went on in the same line towards the distant gates of the park. It was clear that the car had been driven down the long straight road, and then, instead of turning with the road to the left, had gone straight on over the turf to its doom. But it was not this discovery that had riveted Fisher's eye, but something even more solid. At the angle of the white road a dark and solitary figure was standing almost as still as a finger-post. It was that of a big man in rough shooting clothes, bareheaded, and with tousled curly hair that gave him a rather wild look. On a nearer approach this first more fantastic impression faded. In a full light the figure took on more conventional colours, as of an ordinary gentleman who happened to have come out without a hat and without very studiously brushing his hair. But the massive stature remained, and something deep and even cavernous about the setting of the eyes redeemed his animal good looks from the commonplace. But March had no time to study the man more closely, for, much to his astonishment, his guide merely observed, "'Hello, Jack,' and walked past him as if he had indeed been a signpost, and without attempting to inform him of the catastrophe beyond the rocks. It was relatively a small thing, but it was only the first thing in a string of singular antics on which his new and eccentric friend was leading him. The man they had passed looked after them in rather a suspicious fashion, 
But Fisher continued serenely on his way along the straight road that ran past the gates of the great estate. That's John Burke, the traveller, he condescended to explain. I expect you've heard of him, shoots big game and all that. Sorry I couldn't stop to introduce you, but I dare say you'll meet him later on. I know his book, of course, said March, with renewed interest. That is certainly a fine piece of description about their being only conscious of the closeness of the elephant when the colossal head blocked out the moon. Yes, young Halkett writes jolly well, I think. What didn't you know? Halkett wrote Burke's books for him. Burke can't use anything except a gun, and you can't write with that. Oh, he's genuine enough in his way, you know, as brave as a lion, or a good deal braver by all accounts. You seem to know all about him, observed March, with a rather bewildered laugh, and about a good many other people. Fisher's bald brow became abruptly corrugated, and a curious expression came into his eyes. I know too much, he said. That's what's the matter with me. That's what's the matter with all of us. And the whole show, we know too much, too much about one another, too much about ourselves. That's why I'm really interested just now about one thing that I don't know. And that is, inquired the other, why that poor fellow is dead. They had walked along the straight road for nearly a mile, conversing at intervals in this fashion, and March had a singular sense of the whole world being turned inside out. Mr. Horne Fisher did not especially abuse his friends and relatives in fashionable society. Of some of them he spoke with affection, but they seemed to be an entirely new set of men and women who happened to have the same nerves as the men and women mentioned most often in the newspapers. Yet no fury of revolt could have seemed to him more utterly revolutionary than this cold familiarity. It was like daylight on the other side of stage scenery. They reached the great lodge gates of the park, and, to March's surprise, passed them and continued along the interminable white straight road. But he was himself too early for his appointment with Sir Howard, and was not disinclined to see the end of his new friend's experiment, whatever it might be. They had long left the moorland behind them, and half the white road was grey in the great shadow of the tallwood pine forests, themselves like grey bars shuttered against the sunshine and within, amid that clear noon, manufacturing their own midnight. Soon, however, rifts began to appear in them like gleams of coloured windows. The trees thinned and fell away as the road went forward, showing the wild, irregular copses in which, as Fisher said, the house-party had been blazing away all day. And about two hundred yards farther on they came to the first turn of the road. At the corner stood a sort of decayed inn with the dingy sign of the grapes. The signboard was dark and indecipherable by now, and hung back against the sky and the grey moorland beyond, about as inviting as a gallows. March remarked that it looked like a tavern for vinegar instead of wine. A good phrase, said Fisher, and so it would be if you were silly enough to drink wine in it, but the beer is very good, and so is the brandy. March followed him to the bar parlour with some wonder, and his dim sense of repugnance was not dismissed by the first sight of the innkeeper, who was widely different from the genial innkeepers of romance, a bony man very silent behind a black moustache, but with black restless eyes. Taciturn as he was, the investigator succeeded at last in extracting a scrap of information from him by dint of ordering beer and talking to him persistently and minutely on the subject of motor-cars. He evidently regarded the innkeeper as in some singular way an authority on motor-cars, 
as being deep in the secrets of the mechanism, management, and mismanagement of motor-cars, holding the man all the time with a glittering eye like the ancient mariner. Out of all this rather mysterious conversation, there did emerge at last a sort of admission that one particular motor-car of a given description had stopped before the inn about an hour before, and that an elderly man had alighted, requiring some mechanical assistance. Asked if the visitor required any other assistance, the innkeeper said shortly that the old man had filled his flask and taken a packet of sandwiches. And with these words the somewhat inhospitable host had walked hastily out of the bar, and they heard him banging doors in the dark interior. Fisher's weary eye wandered round the dusty and dreary inn parlour, and rested dreamily on a glass case containing a stuffed bird, with a gun hung on hooks above it, which seemed to be its only ornament. Puggy was a humorist, he observed, at least in his own rather grim style, but it seems rather too grim a joke for a man to buy a packet of sandwiches when he is just going to commit suicide. If you come to that, answered March, it isn't very usual for a man to buy a packet of sandwiches when he's just outside the door of a grand house he's going to stop at. No, no, repeated Fisher almost mechanically, and then suddenly cocked his eye at his interlocutor with a much livelier expression. By Joe, that's an idea, you're perfectly right, and that suggests a very queer idea, doesn't it? There was a silence, and then March started with irrational nervousness, as the door of the inn was flung open, and another man walked rapidly to the counter. He had struck it with a coin, and called out for brandy before he saw the other two guests, who were sitting at a bare wooden table under the window. When he turned about with a rather wild stare, March had yet another unexpected emotion, for his guide hailed the man as Hoggs, and introduced him as Sir Howard Horn. He looked rather older than his boyish portraits in the illustrated papers, as is the way of politicians. His flat, fair hair was touched with grey, but his face was almost comically round, with a Roman nose which, when combined with his quick, bright eyes, raised a vague reminiscence of a parrot. He had a cap rather at the back of his head, and a gun under his arm. Harold March had imagined many things about his meeting with a great political reformer, but he had never pictured him with a gun under his arm drinking brandy in a public house. "'So you're stopping at Jinx, too,' said Fisher. "'Everybody seems to be at Jinx.' "'Yes,' replied the Chancellor of the Exchequer. "'Jolly good shooting. At least all of it that isn't Jinx shooting. I never knew a chap with such good shooting that was such a bad shot. Mind you, he's a jolly good fellow and all that. I don't say a word against him. But he never learned to hold a gun when he was packing pork or whatever he did.' They say he shot the cockade off his own servant's hat. Just like him to have cockades, of course. He shot the weathercock off his own ridiculous gilded summer-house. It's the only cock he'll ever kill, I should think. Are you coming up there now? Fisher said, rather vaguely, that he was following soon when he had fixed something up, and the Chancellor of the Exchequer left the inn. March fancied he had been a little upset or impatient when he called for the brandy, but he had talked himself back into a satisfactory state, if the talk had not been quite what his literary visitor had expected. Fisher, a few minutes afterward, slowly led the way out of the tavern and stood in the middle of the road, looking down in the direction from which they had travelled. Then he walked back about two hundred yards in that direction and stood still again. "'I should think this is about the place,' he said. "'What place?' asked his companion. "'The place where the poor fellow was killed,' said Fisher, sadly. 
"'What do you mean?' demanded March. "'He was smashed up on the rocks a mile and a half from here.' "'No, he wasn't,' replied Fisher. "'He didn't fall on the rocks at all. "'Didn't you notice that he only fell on the slope of soft grass underneath? "'But I saw that he had a bullet in him already.' "'Then, after a pause, he added, "'He was alive at the inn, but he was dead long before he came to the rocks. "'So he was shot as he drove his car down this strip of straight road, "'and I should think somewhere about here.' After that, of course, the car went straight on with nobody to stop or turn it. It's really a very cunning dodge in its way, for the body would be found far away, and most people would say, as you do, that it was an accident to a motorist. The murderer must have been a clever brute. But wouldn't the shot be heard at the inn or somewhere, asked March? It would be heard, but it would not be noticed. That, continued the investigator, is where he was clever again. Shooting was going on all over the place all day. Very likely he timed his shot so as to drown it in a number of others. Certainly he was a first-class criminal, and he was something else as well. "'What do you mean?' asked his companion, with a creepy premonition of something coming, he knew not why. "'He was a first-class shot,' said Fisher. He had turned his back abruptly and was walking down a narrow, grassy lane, little more than a cart-track which lay opposite the inn, and marked the end of the great estate and the beginning of the open moors. March plodded after him with the same idle perseverance, and found him staring through a gap in giant weeds and thorns at the flat face of a painted paling. From behind the paling rose the great grey columns of a row of poplars, which filled the heavens above them with dark green shadow, and shook faintly in a wind which had sunk slowly into a breeze. The afternoon was already deepening into evening, and the titanic shadows of the poplars lengthened over a third of the landscape. "'Are you a first-class criminal?' asked Fisher, in a friendly tone. "'I'm afraid I'm not, but I think I can manage to be a sort of fourth-rate burglar.' And before his companion could reply, he managed to swing himself up and over the fence. March followed without much bodily effort, but with considerable mental disturbance. The poplars grew so close against the fence that they had some difficulty in slipping past them, and beyond the poplars they could see only a high hedge of laurel, green and lustrous in the level sun. Something in this limitation by a series of living walls made him feel as if he were really entering a shattered house instead of an open field. It was as if he came in by a disused door or window and found the way blocked by furniture. When they had circumvented the laurel hedge, they came out on a sort of terrace of turf, which fell by one green step to an oblong lawn like a bowling green. Beyond this was the only building in sight, a low conservatory, which seemed far away from anywhere like a glass cottage standing in its own fields in fairyland. Fisher knew that lonely look of the outlying parts of a great house well enough. He realised that it is more of a satire on aristocracy than if it were choked with weeds and littered with ruins. For it is not neglected, and yet it is deserted. At any rate, it is disused. It is regularly swept and garnished for a master who never comes. Looking over the lawn, however, he saw one object which he had not apparently expected. It was a sort of tripod supporting a large disc like the round top of a table tipped sideways and it was not until they had dropped onto the lawn and walked across to look at it that March realised that it was a target. It was worn and weather-stained, the gay colours of its concentric rings were faded, possibly it had been set up in those far-off Victorian days when there was a fashion for archery.
March had one of his vague visions of ladies in cloudy crinolines and gentlemen in outlandish hats and whiskers, revisiting that lost garden like ghosts. Fisher, who was peering more closely at the target, startled him by an explanation. Hello, he said. Somebody's been peppering this thing with shot, after all, and quite lately, too. Why, I believe old Jink's been trying to improve his bad shooting here. Yes, and it looks as if it still wanted improving, answered March, laughing. Not one of these shots is anywhere near the bull's-eye. They seem just scattered about in the wildest way. In the wildest way, repeated Fisher, still peering intently at the target. He seemed merely to assent, but March fancied his eye was shining under its sleepy lid, and that he had straightened his stooping figure with a strange effort. "'Excuse me a moment,' he said, feeling in his pockets. "'I think I've got some of my chemicals, and after that we'll go up to the house.' And he stooped again over the target, putting something with his finger over each of the shot-holes. So far as March could see, merely a dull grey smear. Then they went through the gathering twilight up the long green avenues to the great house. Here again, however, the eccentric investigator did not enter by the front door. He walked round the house until he found a window open, and, leaping into it, introduced his friend to what appeared to be the gun-room. Rows of the regular instruments for bringing down birds stood against the walls. But across a table in the window lay one or two weapons of heavier and more formidable pattern. "'Hello, these are Burke's big game rifles,' said Fisher. "'I never knew he kept them here.' He lifted one of them, examined it briefly, and put it down again, frowning heavily. Almost as he did so, a strange young man came hurriedly into the room. He was dark and sturdy, with a bumpy forehead and a bulldog jaw, and he spoke with a curt apology. "'I left Major Burke's guns here,' he said, "'and he wants them packed up. He's going away tonight.' And he carried off the two rifles without casting a glance at the stranger. Through the open window they could see his short, dark figure walking away across the glimmering garden. Fisher got out of the window again, and stood looking after him. "'That's Hulkit, whom I told you about,' he said. "'I knew he was a sort of secretary, and had to do with Burke's papers. But I never knew he had anything to do with his guns. But he's just the sort of silent, sensible little devil who might be very good at anything. The sort of man you know for years, before you find he's a chess champion.' He had begun to walk in the direction of the disappearing secretary, and they soon came within sight of the rest of the house-party, talking and laughing on the lawn. They could see the tall figure and loose mane of the lion-hunter dominating the little group. "'By the way,' observed Fisher, "'when we were talking about Burke and Hulkett, I said that a man couldn't very well write with a gun. Well, I'm not so sure now. Did you ever hear of an artist so clever that he could draw with a gun? There's a wonderful chap loose about here. Sir Howard hailed Fisher and his friend the journalist with almost boisterous amiability. The latter was presented to Major Burke and Mr. Halkett, and also, by way of a parenthesis, to his host Mr. Jenkins, a commonplace little man in loud tweeds whom everybody else seemed to treat with a sort of affection, as if he were a baby. The irrepressible Chancellor of the Exchequer was still talking about the birds he'd brought down, the birds that Burke and Halkett had brought down, and the birds that Jenkins, their host, had failed to bring down. It seemed to be a sort of sociable monomania. "'You and your big game,' he ejaculated aggressively to Burke. "'Why, anybody could shoot big game. You want to be a shot to shoot small game.' 
Quite so, interposed Hornfisher. Now, if only a hippopotamus could fly up in the air out of that bush, or you preserved flying elephants on the estate, why, then— why, even Jink might hit that sort of a bird, cried Sir Howard, hilariously slapping his host on the back. Even he might hit a haystack or a hippopotamus. Look here, you fellows, said Fisher. I want you to come along with me for a minute and shoot at something else. Not a hippopotamus. Another kind of queer animal I found on the estate. It's an animal with three legs and one eye, and it's all the colours of the rainbow. What the deuce are you talking about? asked Burke. Come along and see, replied Fisher cheerfully. Such people seldom reject anything nonsensical, for they are always seeking for something new. They gravely rearmed themselves from the gun-room, and trooped along at the tail of their guide, Sir Howard only pausing in a sort of ecstasy to point out the celebrated gilt summer-house on which the gilt weathercock still stood crooked. It was dusk turning to dark by the time they reached the remote green by the poplars, and accepted the new and aimless game of shooting at the old mark. The last light seemed to fade from the lawn, and the poplars against the sunset were like great plumes upon a purple hearse, when the futile procession finally curved round and came out in front of the target. Sir Howard again slapped his host on the shoulder, shoving him playfully forward to take the first shot. The shoulder and arm he touched seemed unnaturally stiff and angular. Mr. Jenkins was holding his gun in an attitude more awkward than any that his satiric friends had seen or expected. At the same instant a horrible scream seemed to come from nowhere. It was so unnatural and so unsuited to the scene that it might have been made by some inhuman thing flying on wings above them, or eavesdropping in the dark woods beyond. But Fisher knew that it had started and stopped on the pale lips of Jefferson Jenkins of Montreal. And no one at that moment, catching sight of Jefferson Jenkins' face, would have complained that it was commonplace. The next moment a torrent of guttural but good-humoured oaths came from Major Burke, as he and the two other men saw what was in front of them. The target stood up in the dim grass like a dark goblin, grinning at them, and it was literally grinning. It had two eyes like stars and in similar livid points of light were picked out the two upturned and open nostrils and the two ends of the wide and tight mouth. A few white dots above each eye indicated the hoary eyebrows, and one of them ran upward almost erect. It was a brilliant caricature done in bright dotted lines, and March knew of whom. It shone in the shadowy grass, smeared with sea-fire, as if one of the submarine monsters had crawled into the twilight garden. But it had the head of a dead man. "'It's only luminous paint,' said Burke. "'Old Fisher's been having a joke with that phosphorescent stuff of his.' "'Seems to be meant for old Puggy,' observed Sir Howard. "'Hits him off very well.' With that they all laughed, except Jenkins. When they had all done, he made a noise like the first effort of an animal to laugh and Horn Fisher suddenly strode across to him and said, "'Mr. Jenkins, I must speak to you at once, in private.' It was by the little watercourse in the moors, on the slopes under the hanging rock, that March met his new friend Fisher, by appointment, shortly after the ugly and almost grotesque scene that had broken up the group in the garden. "'It was a monkey trick of mine,' observed Fisher, gloomily, putting phosphorus on the target but the only chance to make him jump was to give him the horrors suddenly, 
and when he saw the face he had shot at shining on the target he practised on, all lit up with an infernal light, he did jump, quite enough for my own intellectual satisfaction. "'I'm afraid I don't quite understand, even now,' said March, "'exactly what he did, or why he did it.' "'You ought to,' replied Fisher, with his rather dreary smile, "'for you gave me the first suggestion yourself.' "'Oh, yes, you did, and it was a very shrewd one. "'You said a man wouldn't take sandwiches with him to dine at a great house. "'It was quite true, and the inference was that, though he was going there, "'he didn't mean to dine there, or, at any rate, that he might not be dining there.' It occurred to me at once that he probably expected the visit to be unpleasant, or the reception doubtful, or something that would prevent his accepting hospitality. Then it struck me that Turnbull was a terror to certain shady characters in the past, and that he had come down to identify and denounce one of them. The chances, at the start, pointed to the host, that is, Jenkins. I'm morally certain now that Jenkins was the undesirable alien Turnbull wanted to convict in another shooting affair. But you see, the shooting gentleman had another shot in his locker. But you said he would have to be a very good shot, protested March. Jenkins is a very good shot, said Fisher, a very good shot who can pretend to be a very bad shot. Shall I tell you the second hint I hit on after yours, to make me think it was Jenkins? It was my cousin's account of his bad shooting. He'd shot a cockade off a hat and a weathercock off a building. Now, in fact, a man must shoot very well indeed to shoot so badly as that. He must shoot very neatly to hit the cockade and not the head or even the hat. If the shots had really gone at random, the chances are a thousand to one that they would not have hit such prominent and picturesque objects. They were chosen because they were prominent and picturesque objects. They make a story to go the round of society. He keeps the crooked weathercock in the summer-house to perpetuate the story of a legend. And then he lay in wait with his evil eye and wicked gun, safely ambushed behind the legend of his own incompetence. But there's more than that. There is the summer-house itself. I mean, there is the whole thing. There's all that Jenkins gets chaffed about. The gilding and the gaudy colours and all the vulgarity that's supposed to stamp him as an upstart. Now, as a matter of fact, upstarts generally don't do this. God knows there's enough of them in society. And one knows them well enough. And this is the very last thing they do. They're generally only too keen to know the right thing and do it. And they instantly put themselves, body and soul, into the hands of art decorators and art experts who do the whole thing for them. There's hardly another millionaire alive who has the moral courage to have a gilt monogram on a chair like that one in the gunroom. For that matter, there's the name as well as the monogram. Names like Tompkins and Jenkins and Jinx are funny without being vulgar. I mean, they are vulgar without being common. If you prefer it, they are commonplace without being common. They are just the names to be chosen to look ordinary. But they are really rather extraordinary. Do you know many people called Tompkins? It's a good deal rarer than Talbot. It's pretty much the same with the comic clothes of the parvenu. Jenkins dresses like a character in Punch, but that's because he is a character in Punch. I mean, he's a fictitious character. He's a fabulous animal. He doesn't exist. Have you ever considered what it must be like to be a man who doesn't exist? I mean, to be a man with a fictitious character that he has to keep up at the expense not merely of personal talents, to be a new kind of hypocrite hiding a talent in a new kind of napkin. This man has chosen his hypocrisy very ingeniously. It was really a new one. A subtle villain has dressed up as a dashing gentleman and a worthy businessman and a philanthropist and a saint. 
but the loud checks of a comical little cad were really rather a new disguise. But the disguise must be very irksome to a man who can really do things. This is a dexterous little cosmopolitan gutter snipe who can do scores of things, not only shoot, but draw and paint and probably pay the fiddle. Now a man like that may find the hiding of his talents useful, but he could never help wanting to use them where they were useless. If he can draw, he will draw absent-mindedly on blotting paper. I suspect this rascal has often drawn poor old Puggy's face on blotting paper. Probably he began doing it in blots, as he afterwards did it in dots, or rather shots. It was the same sort of thing. He found a disused target in a deserted yard, and couldn't resist indulging in a little secret shooting, like secret drinking. You thought the shots all scattered and irregular, and so they were, but not accidental. No two distances were alike, but the different points were exactly where he wanted to put them. As nothing needs so much mathematical precision as a wild caricature. I've dabbled a little in drawing myself, and I assure you that to put one dot where you want it is a marvel with a pen close to a piece of paper. It is a miracle to do it across a garden with a gun. But a man who can work those miracles will always itch to work them, if it's only in the dark. After a pause, March observed thoughtfully, but he couldn't have brought him down like a bird with one of those little guns. No, that was why I went into the gun-room, replied Fisher. He did it with one of Burke's rifles, and Burke thought he knew the sound of it. That's why he rushed out without a hat, looking so wild. He saw nothing but a car passing quickly, which he followed for a little way, and then concluded he'd made a mistake. There was another silence, during which Fisher sat on a great stone as motionless as on their first meeting, and watched the grey and silver river eddying past under the bushes. Then March said, abruptly, "'Of course he knows the truth now.' "'Nobody knows the truth but you and I,' answered Fisher, with a certain softening in his voice, "'and I don't think you and I will ever quarrel.' "'What do you mean?' asked March, in an altered accent. "'What have you done about it?' Horn Fisher continued to gaze steadily at the eddying stream. At last he said, the police have proved it was a motor accident. But you know it was not. I told you that I know too much, replied Fisher, with his eye on the river. I know that, and I know a great many other things. I know the atmosphere, and the way the whole thing works. I know this fellow has succeeded in making himself something incurably commonplace and comic. I know you can't get up a persecution of old Tootle or little Titch. If I were to tell Hoggs or Halkett that old Jink was an assassin, they would almost die of laughter before my eyes. Oh, I don't say their laughter's quite innocent, though it's genuine in its way. They want old Jink, and they couldn't do without him. I don't say I'm quite innocent. I like Hoggs. I don't want him to be down and out, and he'd be done for if Jink can't pay for his coronet. They were devilish near the line at the last election, but the only real objection to it is that it's impossible. Nobody would believe it. It's not in the picture. The crooked weathercock would always turn it into a joke. "'Don't you think this is infamous?' asked March quietly. "'I think a good many things,' replied the other. "'If you people ever happen to blow the whole tangle of society to hell with dynamite, I don't know that the human race will be much the worse. But don't be too hard on me merely because I know what society is. That's why I moon away my time over things like stinking fish.' There was a pause as he settled himself down again by the stream, 
and then he added, I told you before I had to throw back the big fish. End of chapter. The Man Who Knew Too Much by G. K. Chesterton. Read by Martin Clifton for LibriVox.org. Chapter 2 The Vanishing Prince. This tale begins among a tangle of tales round a name that is at once recent and legendary. The name is that of Michael O'Neill, popularly called Prince Michael, partly because he claimed descent from ancient Fenian princes, and partly because he was credited with a plan to make himself Prince President of Ireland, as the last Napoleon did of France. He was undoubtedly a gentleman of honourable pedigree and of many accomplishments, but two of his accomplishments emerged from all the rest. He had a talent for appearing when he was not wanted, and a talent for disappearing when he was wanted, especially when he was wanted by the police. It may be added that his disappearances were more dangerous than his appearances. In the latter he seldom went beyond the sensational, pasting up seditious placards, tearing down official placards, making flamboyant speeches, or unfurling forbidden flags. But in order to effect the former, he would sometimes fight for his freedom with startling energy, from which men were sometimes lucky to escape with a broken head instead of a broken neck. His most famous feats of escape, however, were due to dexterity and not to violence. On a cloudless summer morning he had come down a country road, white with dust, and, pausing outside a farmhouse, had told the farmer's daughter with elegant indifference that the local police were in pursuit of him. The girl's name was Bridget Royce, a sombre and even sullen type of beauty, and she looked at him darkly as if in doubt and said, Do you want me to hide you? Upon which he only laughed, leapt lightly over the stone wall, and strode toward the farm, merely throwing over his shoulder the remark, Thank you, I have generally been quite capable of hiding myself. In which proceeding he acted with a tragic ignorance of the nature of women, and there fell on his path in that sunshine a shadow of doom. While he disappeared through the farmhouse, the girl remained for a few moments looking up the road, and two perspiring policemen came ploughing up to the door where she stood. Though still angry, she was still silent, and a quarter of an hour later the officers had searched the house and were already inspecting the kitchen garden and the cornfield behind it. In the ugly reaction of her mood, she might have been tempted even to point out the fugitive, but for a small difficulty that she had no more notion than the policeman had of where he could possibly have gone. The kitchen garden was enclosed by a very low wall, and the cornfield beyond lay a slant like a square patch on a great green hill, on which he could still have been seen even as a dot in the distance. Everything stood solid in its familiar place. The apple tree was too small to support or hide a climber. The only shed stood open and obviously empty. There was no sound, save the droning of summer flies, and the occasional flutter of a bird unfamiliar enough to be surprised by the scarecrow in the field. There was scarcely a shadow save a few blue lines that fell from the thin trees. Every detail was picked out by the brilliant day light, as if in a microscope. 
The girl described the scene later with all the passionate realism of her race, and, whether or no the policeman had a similar eye for the picturesque, they had at least an eye for the facts of the case, and were compelled to give up the chase and retire from the scene. Bridget Royce remained as if in a trance, staring at the sunlit garden in which a man had just vanished like a fairy. She was still in a sinister mood, and the miracle took in her mind a character of unfriendliness and fear, as if the fairy were decidedly a bad fairy. The sun upon the glittering garden depressed her more than the darkness, but she continued to stare at it. Then the world itself went half-witted, and she screamed. The scarecrow moved in the sunlight. It had stood with its back to her in a battered old black hat and a tattered garment, and with all its tatters flying it strode away across the hill. She did not analyse the audacious trick by which the man had turned to his advantage the subtle effects of the expected and the obvious. She was still under the cloud of more individual complexities. And she noticed most of all that the vanishing scarecrow did not even turn to look at the farm. And the fates that were running so adverse to his fantastic career of freedom ruled that his next adventure, though it had the same success in another quarter, should increase the danger in this quarter. Among the many similar adventures related of him in this manner, it is also said that some days afterward another girl, named Mary Cregan, found him concealed on the farm where she worked, and, if the story is true, she must also have had the shock of an uncanny experience. For when she was busy at some lonely task in the yard, she heard a voice speaking out of the well and found that the eccentric had managed to drop himself into the bucket, which was some little way below, the well only partly full of water. In this case, however, he had to appeal to the woman to wind up the rope. And men say it was when this news was told to the other woman that her soul walked over the borderline of treason. Such, at least, were the stories told of him in the countryside, and there were many more as that he had stood insolently in a splendid green dressing-gown on the steps of a great hotel, and then led the police a chase through a long suite of grand apartments, and finally threw his own bedroom onto a balcony that overhung the river. The moment the pursuers stepped onto the balcony, it broke under them, and they dropped pell-mell into the eddying waters, while Michael, who had thrown off his gown and dived, was able to swim away. It was said that he had carefully cut away the props, so that they would not support anything so heavy as a policeman. But here again he was immediately fortunate, yet ultimately unfortunate, for it is said that one of the men was drowned, leaving a family feud which made a little rift in his popularity. These stories can now be told in some detail, not because they are the most marvellous of his many adventures, but because these alone were not covered with silence by the loyalty of the peasantry. These alone found their way into official reports, and it is these which three of the chief officials of the country were reading and discussing, when the more remarkable part of this story begins. Night was far advanced, and the lights shone in the cottage that served for a temporary police station near the coast. On one side of it were the last houses of the straggling village, and on the other nothing but a waste moorland stretching away toward the sea, the line of which was broken by no landmark except a solitary tower 
of the prehistoric pattern still found in Ireland, standing up as slender as a column, but pointed like a pyramid. At a wooden table in front of the window, which normally looked out on this landscape, sat two men in plain clothes, but with something of a military bearing, for indeed they were the two chiefs of the detective service of that district. The senior of the two, both in age and rank, was a sturdy man with a short white beard and frosty eyebrows fixed in a frown which suggested rather worry than severity. His name was Morton, and he was a Liverpool man, long pickled in the Irish quarrels, and doing his duty among them in a sour fashion not altogether unsympathetic. He had spoken a few sentences to his companion, Nolan, a tall, dark man with a cadaverous, equine Irish face, when he seemed to remember something, and touched a bell which rang in another room. The subordinate he had summoned immediately appeared with a sheaf of papers in his hand. "'Sit down, Wilson,' he said. "'Those are the depositions, I suppose.' "'Yes,' replied the third officer. "'I think I've got all there is to be got out of them, so I sent the people away.' "'Did Mary Cragen give evidence?' asked Morton, with a frown that looked a little heavier than usual. "'No, but her master did,' answered the man called Wilson, who had flat red hair and a plain pale face, not without sharpness. "'I think he's hanging around the girl himself, and is out against a rival. There's always some reason of that sort, when we are told the truth about anything. And you bet the other girl told right enough.' "'Well, let's hope there'll be some sort of use,' remarked Nolan, in a somewhat hopeless manner gazing out into the darkness. "'Anything is to the good,' said Morton, "'that lets us know anything about him.' "'Do we know anything about him?' asked the melancholy Irishman. "'We know one thing about him,' said Wilson, "'and it's the one thing that nobody ever knew before. "'We know where he is.' "'Are you sure?' inquired Morton, looking at him sharply. "'Quite sure,' replied his assistant. "'At this very minute he's in that tower over there by the shore.' If you go near enough, you'll see the candle burning in the window. As he spoke, the noise of a horn sounded on the road outside, and a moment after they heard the throbbing of a motor-car brought to a standstill before the door. Morton instantly sprang to his feet. "'Thank the Lord, that's the car from Dublin,' he said. "'I can't do anything without special authority, not if he was sitting on the top of the tower and putting out his tongue at us. But the chief can do what he thinks best.' He hurried out to the entrance, and was soon exchanging greetings with a big, handsome man in a fur coat, who brought into the dingy little station the indescribable glow of the great cities and the luxuries of the great world. For this was Sir Walter Carey, an official of such eminence in Dublin Castle, that nothing short of the case of Prince Michael would have brought him on such a journey in the middle of the night. But the case of Prince Michael, as it happened, was complicated by legalism as well as lawlessness. On the last occasion he had escaped by a forensic quibble, and not, as usual, by a private escapade. And it was a question whether at the moment he was amenable to the law or not. It might be necessary to stretch a point, but a man like Sir Walter could probably stretch it as far as he liked. Whether he intended to was a question to be considered. Despite the almost aggressive touch of luxury in the fur coat, it soon became apparent that Sir Walter's large leonine head was for use as well as ornament, and he considered the matter soberly and sanely enough. Five chairs were set round the plain deal table, for who should Sir Walter bring with him but his young relative and secretary, Horne Fisher. 
Sir Walter listened with grave attention, and his secretary with polite boredom, to the string of episodes by which the police had traced the flying rebel from the steps of the hotel to the solitary tower beside the sea. There, at least, he was cornered between the moors and the breakers, and the scout sent by Wilson reported him as writing under a solitary candle, perhaps composing another of his tremendous proclamations. Indeed, it would have been typical of him to choose it as the place in which finally to turn to bay. He had some remote claim on it, as on a family castle, and those who knew him thought him capable of imitating the primitive Irish chieftains who fell fighting against the sea. "'I saw some queer-looking people leaving as I came in,' said Sir Walter Carey. "'I suppose they were your witnesses, but why do they turn up here at this time of night?' Orton smiled grimly. "'They come here by night because they would be dead men if they came here by day.' They are criminals committing a crime that is more horrible here than theft or murder. What crime do you mean? asked the other with some curiosity. They're helping the law, said Morton. There was a silence, and Sir Walter considered the papers before him with an abstracted eye. At last he spoke. Quite so. But look here, if the local feeling is as lively as that, there are a good many points to consider. I believe the new act will enable me to collar him now if I think it best. But is it best? A serious rising would do us no good in Parliament, and the government has enemies in England as well as Ireland. It won't do if I have done what looks a little like sharp practice, and then only raised a revolution. It's all the other way, said the man called Wilson rather quickly. There won't be half so much of a revolution if you arrest him as there will if you leave him loose for three days longer. But anyhow, there can't be anything nowadays that the proper police can't manage. Mr. Wilson is a Londoner, said the Irish detective with a smile. Yes, I'm a Cockney, all right, replied Wilson, and I think I'm all the better for that, especially at this job, oddly enough. Sir Walter seemed slightly amused at the pertinacity of the third officer, and perhaps even more amused at the slight accent with which he spoke which rendered rather needless the boast about his origin. "'Do you mean to say,' he asked, "'that you know more about the business here "'because you've come from London?' "'Sounds funny, I know, but I do believe it,' answered Wilson. "'I believe these affairs want fresh methods, "'but most of all, I believe they want a fresh eye.' The superior officers laughed, and the red-haired man went on with a slight touch of temper. "'Well, look at the facts.' See how the fellow got away every time, and you'll understand what I mean. Why was he able to stand in the place of the scarecrow, hidden by nothing but an old hat? Because it was a village policeman who knew the scarecrow was there, was expecting it, and therefore took no notice of it. Now, I never expect a scarecrow. I've never seen one in the street, and I stare at one when I see it in the field. It's a new thing to me, and worth noticing. And it was just the same when he hid in the well. You are ready to find a well in a place like that, you look for a well, and so you don't see it. I don't look for it, and therefore I do look at it. It is certainly an idea, said Sir Walter, smiling, but what about the balcony? Balconies are occasionally seen in London. But not rivers right under them, as if it was in Venice, replied Wilson. It is certainly a new idea, repeated Sir Walter, with something like respect. He had all the love of the luxurious classes for new ideas, but he also had a critical faculty and was inclined to think, after due reflection, 
that it was a true idea as well. Growing dawn had already turned the window panes from black to grey when Sir Walter got abruptly to his feet. The others rose also, taking this for a signal that the arrest was to be undertaken. But their leader stood for a moment in deep thought, as if conscious that he had come to a parting of the ways. Suddenly the silence was pierced by a long, wailing cry from the dark moors outside. The silence that followed it seemed more startling than the shriek itself, and it lasted until Nolan said heavily, "'Tis the banshee. Somebody is marked for the grave.' His long, large, featured face was as pale as a moon, and it was easy to remember that he was the only Irishman in the room. "'Well, I know that banshee,' said Wilson cheerfully, "'ignorant as you think I am of these things. I talked to that banshee myself an hour ago, and I sent that banshee up to the tower and told her to sing out like that if she could get a glimpse of our friend writing his proclamation.' "'Do you mean that girl Bridget Royce?' asked Morton, drawing his frosty brows together. "'Has she turned King's evidence to that extent?' "'Yes,' answered Wilson. "'I know very little of these local things, you tell me, "'but I reckon an angry woman is much the same in all countries.' Nolan, however, seemed still moody and unlike himself. "'It's an ugly noise and an ugly business altogether,' he said. "'If it's really the end of Prince Michael, it may well be the end of other things as well.' When the spirit is on him, he would escape by a ladder of dead men, and wade through the sea if it were made of blood. "'Is that the real reason of your pious alarms?' asked Wilson, with a slight sneer. The Irishman's face blackened with a new passion. "'I've faced as many murders in County Clare as you ever fought within Clapham Junction, Mr. Cockney,' he said. "'Hush, please,' said Morton sharply. "'Wilson, you have no kind of right to imply doubt of your superior's conduct.' I hope you will prove yourself as courageous and trustworthy as he has always been." The pale face of the red-haired man seemed a shade paler, but he was silent and composed, and Sir Walter went up to Nolan with marked courtesy, saying, "'Shall we go outside now and get this business done?' Dawn had lifted, leaving a wide chasm of white between a great grey cloud and the great grey moorland, beyond which the tower was outlined against the daybreak and the sea. Something in its plain and primitive shape vaguely suggested the dawn in the first days of the earth, in some prehistoric time when even the colours were hardly created, when there was only blank daylight between cloud and clay. These dead hues were relieved only by one spot of gold, the spark of the candle alight in the window of the lonely tower, and burning on into the broadening daylight. As the group of detectives, followed by a cordon of policemen, spread out in a crescent to cut off all escape, the light in the tower flashed as if it were moved for a moment, and then went out. They knew the man inside had realised the daylight and blown out his candle. "'There are other windows, aren't there?' asked Morton. "'And a door, of course, somewhere round the corner. Only a round tower has no corners.' "'Another example of my small suggestion,' observed Wilson quietly. That queer tower was the first thing I saw when I came to these parts, and I can tell you a little more about it, or, at any rate, the outside of it. There are four windows altogether, one a little way from this one, but just out of sight. Those are both on the ground floor, and so is the third on the other side, making a sort of triangle, but the fourth is just above the third, and I suppose it looks on an upper floor. 
"'It's only a sort of loft reached by a ladder,' said Nolan. "'I've played in the place when I was a child. "'It's no more than an empty shell.' And his sad face grew sadder, thinking, perhaps, of the tragedy of his country and the part that he had played in it. "'The man must have got a table and chair at any rate,' said Wilson. "'But no doubt he could have got those from some cottage. "'If I might make a suggestion, sir, I think we ought to approach all the five entrances at once, so to speak. "'One of us should go to the door and one to each window. "'McBride here has a ladder for the upper window.' Mr. Horne Fisher languidly turned to his distinguished relative and spoke for the first time. "'I am rather a convert to the Cockney School of Psychology,' he said in an almost inaudible voice. The others seemed to feel the same influence in different ways, for the group began to break up in the manner indicated. Morton moved toward the window immediately in front of them, where the hidden outlaw had just snuffed the candle. Nolan a little farther westward to the next window, while Wilson, followed by McBride with the ladder, went round to the two windows at the back. Sir Walter Carey himself, followed by his secretary, began to walk round toward the only door, to demand admittance in a more regular fashion. "'He will be armed, of course,' remarked Sir Walter, casually. "'By all accounts,' replied Horne Fisher, "'he can do more with a candlestick than most men with a pistol.' but he is pretty sure to have the pistol, too." Even as he spoke, the question was answered with a tongue of thunder. Morton had just placed himself in front of the nearest window, his broad shoulders blocking the aperture. For an instant it was lit from within, as with red fire, followed by a thundering throng of echoes. The square shoulders seemed to alter in shape, and the sturdy figure collapsed among the tall, rank grasses at the foot of the tower. A puff of smoke floated from the window like a little cloud. The two men behind rushed to the spot and raised him, but he was dead. Sir Walter straightened himself and called out something that was lost in another noise of firing. It was possible that the police were already avenging their comrade from the other side. Fisher had already raced round to the next window, and a new cry of astonishment from him brought his patron to the same spot. Nolan, the Irish policeman, had also fallen, sprawling all his great length in the grass, and it was red with his blood. He was still alive when they reached him, but there was death on his face, and he was only able to make a final gesture, telling them that all was over, and, with a broken word and a heroic effort, motioning them to where his other comrades were besieging the back of the tower. Stunned by these rapid and repeated shocks, the two men could only vaguely obey the gesture, and, finding their way to the other windows at the back, they discovered a scene equally startling, if less final and tragic. The other two officers were not dead or mortally wounded, but McBride lay with a broken leg and his ladder on top of him, evidently thrown down from the top window of the tower, while Wilson lay on his face, quite still as if stunned, with his red head among the grey and silver of the sea-holly. In him, however, the impotence was but momentary, for he began to move and rise as the others came round the tower. "'My God, it's like an explosion!' cried Sir Walter. And, indeed, it was the only word for this unearthly energy by which one man had been able to deal death or destruction on three sides of the same small triangle at the same instant. Wilson had already scrambled to his feet, and with splendid energy flew again at the window, revolver in hand. He fired twice into the opening, and then disappeared in his own smoke. 
but the thud of his feet and the shock of a falling chair told them that the intrepid Londoner had managed at last to leap into the room. Then followed a curious silence, and Sir Walter, walking to the window through the thinning smoke, looked into the hollow shell of the ancient tower. Except for Wilson staring around him, there was nobody there. The inside of the tower was a single empty room, with nothing but a plain wooden chair and a table on which were pens, ink and paper, and the candlestick. Halfway up the high wall there was a rude timber platform under the upper window, a small loft which was more like a large shelf. It was reached only by a ladder, and it seemed to be as bare as the bare walls. Wilson completed his survey of the place, and then went and stared at the things on the table. Then he silently pointed with his lean forefinger at the open page of the large notebook. The writer had suddenly stopped writing, even in the middle of a word. I said it was like an explosion, said Sir Walter Carey at last, and really the man himself seems to have suddenly exploded. But he's blown himself up somehow without touching the tower. He's burst more like a bubble than a bomb. He's touched more valuable things than the tower, said Wilson gloomily. There was a long silence, and then Sir Walter said, seriously, Well, Mr. Wilson, I am not a detective, and these unhappy happenings have left you in charge of that branch of the business. We all lament the cause of this, but I should like to say that I myself have the strongest confidence in your capacity for carrying on the work. What do you think we should do next? Wilson seemed to rouse himself from his depression, and acknowledged the speaker's word, with a warmer civility than he had hitherto shown to anybody. He called in a few of the police to assist in routing out the interior, leaving the rest to spread themselves in a search-party outside. I think, he said, the first thing is to make quite sure about the inside of this place, as it was hardly physically possible for him to have got outside. I suppose poor Nolan would have brought in his banshee and said it was supernaturally possible. But I've got no use for disembodied spirits when I'm dealing with facts and the facts before me are an empty tower with a ladder, a chair, and a table. The spiritualists, said Sir Walter with a smile, would say that spirits could find a great deal of use for a table. I dare say they could if the spirits were on the table, in a bottle, replied Wilson with a curl of his pale lip. The people round here, when they're all sodden up with Irish whisky, may believe in such things. I think they want a little education in this country. Horn Fisher's heavy eyelids fluttered in a faint attempt to rise, as if he were tempted to a lazy protest against the contemptuous tone of the investigator. The Irish believe far too much in spirits to believe in spiritualism, he murmured. They know too much about them. If you want a simple and childlike faith in any spirit that comes along, you can get it in your favourite London. I don't want to get it anywhere, said Wilson shortly. I say I'm dealing with much simpler things than your simple faith, with a table and a chair and a ladder. Now, what I want to say about them at the start is this. They are all three made roughly enough of plain wood, but the table and the chair are fairly new and comparatively clean. The ladder is covered with dust, and there is a cobweb under the top rung of it. That means that he borrowed the first two quite recently, from some cottage, as we supposed, but the ladder has been a long time in this rotten old dustbin. Probably it was part of the original furniture, an heirloom in this magnificent palace of the Irish kings. Again Fisher looked at him under his eyelids, but seemed too sleepy to speak, and Wilson went on with his argument. 
Now, it's quite clear that something very odd has just happened in this place. The chances are ten to one, it seems to me, that it has something specially to do with this place. Probably he came here because he could do it only here. It doesn't seem very inviting otherwise. But the man knew it of old. They say it belonged to his family, so that, altogether, I think, everything points to something in the construction of the tower itself. Your reasoning seems to me excellent, said Sir Walter, who was listening attentively, but what could it be? You see now what I mean about the ladder, went on the detective. It's the only old piece of furniture here, and the first thing that caught that cockney eye of mine. But there is something else. That loft up there is a sort of lumber room without any lumber. So far as I can see, it's as empty as everything else. And as things are, I don't see the use of the ladder leading to it. It seems to me, as I can't find anything unusual down here, that it might pay us to look up there. He got briskly off the table on which he was sitting, for the only chair was allocated to Sir Walter, and ran rapidly up the ladder to the platform above. He was soon followed by the others, Mr. Fisher going last, however, with an appearance of considerable nonchalance. At this stage, however, they were destined to disappointment. Wilson nosed in every corner like a terrier, and examined the roof almost in the posture of a fly. But half an hour afterward they had to confess that they were still without a clue. Sir Walter's private secretary seemed more and more threatened with inappropriate slumber, and, having been the last to climb up the ladder, seemed now to lack the energy even to climb down again. "'Come along, Fisher,' called out Sir Walter from below, when the others had regained the floor. We must consider whether we'll pull the whole place to pieces to see what it's made of. I'm coming in a minute, said the voice from the ledge above their heads, a voice somewhat suggestive of an articulate yawn. What are you waiting for? asked Sir Walter impatiently. Can you see anything there? Well, yes, in a way, replied the voice vaguely. In fact, I see it quite plain now. What is it? asked Wilson sharply from the table on which he sat kicking his heels restlessly. "'Well, it's a man,' said Hornfisher. Wilson bounded off the table as if he'd been kicked off it. "'What do you mean?' he cried. "'How can you possibly see a man?' "'I can see him through the window,' replied the secretary mildly. "'I see him coming across the moor. "'He's making a bee-line across the open country towards this tower. "'He evidently means to pay us a visit, "'and, considering who it seems to be, "'perhaps it would be more polite if we were all at the door to receive him.' and, in a leisurely manner, the secretary came down the ladder. "'Who it seems to be?' repeated Sir Walter in astonishment. "'Well, I think it's the man you call Prince Michael,' observed Mr. Fisher airily. "'In fact, I'm sure it is. I've seen the police portraits of him.' There was a dead silence, and Sir Walter's usually steady brain seemed to go round like a windmill. "'But hang it all,' he said at last, "'even supposing his own explosion could have thrown him half a mile away.' without passing through any of the windows, and left him alive enough for a country walk. Even then, why the devil should he walk in this direction? The murderer does not generally revisit the scene of his crime so rapidly as all that. He doesn't know yet that it is the scene of his crime, answered Hornfisher. What on earth do you mean? You credit him with rather singular absence of mind. Well, the truth is, it isn't the scene of his crime, said Fisher and went and looked out of the window. There was another silence, and then Sir Walter said quietly, 
What sort of notion have you really got in your head, Fisher? Have you developed a new theory about how this fellow escaped out of the ring around him? He never escaped at all, answered the man at the window, without turning round. He never escaped out of the ring, because he was never inside the ring. He was not in this tower at all, at least not when we were surrounding it. He turned and leaned back against the window, but, in spite of his usual listless manner, they almost fancied that the face in shadow was a little pale. I began to guess something of the sort when we were some way from the tower, he said. Did you notice that sort of flash or flicker the candle gave before it was extinguished? I was almost certain it was only the last leap the flame gives when a candle burns itself out. And then I came into this room and I saw that. He pointed at the table, and Sir Walter caught his breath with a sort of curse at his own blindness, for the candle in the candlestick had obviously burned itself away to nothing, and left him, mentally at least, very completely in the dark. Then there is a sort of mathematical question, went on Fisher, leaning back in his limp way and looking up at the bare walls, as if tracing imaginary diagrams there. It's not so easy for a man in the third angle to face the other two at the same moment, especially if they're at the base of an isosceles. I'm sorry if this sounds like a lecture on geometry, but I'm afraid we have no time for it, said Wilson coldly. If this man is really coming back, I must give my orders at once. I think I'll go on with it, though, observed Fisher, staring at the roof with insolent serenity. I must ask you, Mr. Fisher, to let me conduct my inquiry on my own lines, said Wilson firmly. I am the officer in charge now. Yes, remarked Hornfisher softly, but with an accent that somehow chilled the hearer. Yes, but why? Sir Walter was staring, for he had never seen his rather lackadaisical young friend look like that before. Fisher was looking at Wilson with lifted lids, and the eyes under them seemed to have shed or lifted a film, as do the eyes of an eagle. Why are you the officer in charge now, he asked. Why can you conduct the inquiry on your own lines now? How did it come about, I wonder, that the elder officers are not here to interfere with anything you do? Nobody spoke, and nobody can say how soon any one would have collected his wits to speak when a noise came from without. It was the heavy and hollow sound of a blow upon the door of the tower, and to their shaken spirits it sounded strangely like the hammer of doom. The wooden door of the tower moved on its rusty hinges under the hand that struck it, and Prince Michael came into the room. Nobody had the smallest doubt about his identity. His light clothes, though frayed with his adventures, were a fine and almost foppish cut. And he wore a pointed beard, or imperial, perhaps as a further reminiscence of Louis Napoleon. But he was a much taller and more graceful man than his prototype. Before anyone could speak, he had silenced everyone for an instant with a slight but splendid gesture of hospitality. Gentlemen, he said, this is a poor place now, but you are heartily welcome. Wilson was the first to recover, and he took a stride toward the newcomer. Michael O'Neill, I arrest you in the King's name for the murder of Francis Morton and James Nolan. It is my duty to warn you. No, no, Mr. Wilson, cried Fisher, suddenly, you shall not commit a third murder. Sir Walter Carey rose from his chair, which fell over with a crash behind him. What does all this mean, he called out in an authoritative manner. It means, said Fisher, that this man, Hooker Wilson, as soon as he had put his head in at that window, 
killed his two comrades who had put their heads in at the other windows by firing across the empty room. That is what it means. And if you want to know, count how many times he is supposed to have fired, and then count the charges left in his revolver. Wilson, who was still sitting on the table, abruptly put a hand out for the weapon that lay beside him. But the next movement was the most unexpected of all, for the prince, standing in the doorway, passed suddenly from the dignity of a statue to the swiftness of an acrobat, and rent the revolver out of the detective's hand. "'You dog!' he cried. "'So you are the type of English truth, as I am of Irish tragedy. You who come to kill me, wading through the blood of your brethren. If they had fallen in a feud on the hillside, it would be called murder, and yet your sin might be forgiven you. But I, who am innocent, I was to be slain with ceremony.' There would be long speeches and patient judges listening to my vain plea of innocence, noting down my despair and disregarding it. Yes, that is what I call assassination. But killing may be no murder. There is one shot left in this little gun, and I know where it should go. Wilson turned quickly on the table, and even as he turned he twisted in agony, for Michael shot him through the body where he sat, so that he tumbled off the table like lumber. The police rushed to lift him, Sir Walter stood speechless, and then, with a strange and weary gesture, Horne Fisher spoke. "'You are indeed a type of the Irish tragedy,' he said. "'You were entirely in the right, and you have put yourself in the wrong.' The prince's face was like marble for a space, and then there dawned in his eyes a light not unlike that of despair. He laughed suddenly, and flung the smoking pistol on the ground. I am indeed in the wrong, he said. I have committed a crime that may justly bring a curse on me and my children. Horne Fisher did not seem entirely satisfied with this very sudden repentance. He kept his eyes on the man and only said in a low voice, What crime do you mean? I have helped English justice, replied Prince Michael. I have avenged your king's officers. I have done the work of his hangman. For that truly I deserve to be hanged. And he turned to the police with a gesture that did not so much surrender to them, but rather command them to arrest him. This was the story that Horne Fisher told to Harold March, the journalist, many years after, in a little but luxurious restaurant near Piccadilly. He had invited March to dinner some time after the affair he called The Face in the Target, and the conversation had naturally turned on that mystery, and afterward on early memories of Fisher's life and the way in which he was led to study such problems as those of Prince Michael. Horne Fisher was fifteen years older. His thin hair had faded to frontal baldness, and his long, thin hands dropped less with affectation and more with fatigue. And he told the story of the Irish adventure of his youth because it recorded the first occasion on which he had ever come in contact with crime, or discovered how darkly and how terribly crime can be entangled with law. Hooker Wilson was the first criminal I ever knew, and he was a policeman, explained Fisher, twirling his wine-glass, and all my life has been a mixed-up business of the sort. He was a man of very real talent and perhaps genius, and well worth studying both as a detective and a criminal. His white face and red hair were typical of him, for he was one of those who are cold and yet on fire for fame, and he could control anger but not ambition. He swallowed the snubs of his superiors in that first quarrel, though he boiled with resentment. But when he suddenly saw the two heads dark against the dawn and framed in the two windows, 
he could not miss the chance, not only of revenge, but of the removal of the two obstacles to his promotion. He was a dead shot, and counted on silencing both, though proof against him would have been hard in any case. But, as a matter of fact, he had a narrow escape in the case of Nolan, who lived just long enough to say Wilson and point. We thought he was summoning help for his comrade, but he was really denouncing his murderer. After that it was easy to throw down the ladder above him, for a man up a ladder cannot see clearly what is below and behind, and to throw himself on the ground as another victim of the catastrophe. But there was mixed up with his murderous ambition a real belief not only in his own talents, but in his own theories. He did believe in what he called a fresh eye. And he did want scope for fresh methods. There was something in his view, but it failed where such things commonly fail, because the fresh eye cannot see the unseen. It is true about the ladder and the scarecrow, but not about the life and the soul. And he made a bad mistake about what a man like Michael would do when he heard a woman scream. All Michael's very vanity and vainglory made him rush out at once. He would have walked into Dublin Castle for a lady's glove. Call it his pose, or what you will, but he would have done it. What happened when he met her is another story, and one we may never know. But from tales I've heard since, they must have been reconciled. Wilson was wrong there, but there was something for all that in his notion that the newcomer sees most, and that the man on the spot may know too much to know anything. He was right about some things. He was right about me. About you? asked Harold March in some wonder. I am the man who knows too much to know anything, or at any rate to do anything, said Horne Fisher. I don't mean especially about Ireland, I mean about England, I mean about the whole way we are governed, and perhaps the only way we can be governed. You asked me just now what became of the survivors of that tragedy. Well, Wilson recovered, and we managed to persuade him to retire. But we had to pension that damnable murderer more magnificently than any hero who ever fought for England. I managed to save Michael from the worst, but we had to send that perfectly innocent man to penal servitude for a crime we know he never committed. And it was only afterward that we could connive in a sneakish way at his escape. And Sir Walter Carey is Prime Minister of this country, which he would probably never have been if the truth had been told of such a horrible scandal in his department. It might have done for us altogether in Ireland. It would certainly have done for him. And he is my father's old friend, and has always smothered me with kindness. I am too tangled up with the whole thing, you see, and I was certainly never born to set it right. You look distressed, not to say shocked, and I am not at all offended at it. Let us change the subject by all means, if you like. What do you think of this burgundy? It's rather a discovery of mine, like the restaurant itself. And he proceeded to talk learnedly and luxuriantly on all the wines of the world, on which subject also some moralists would consider that he knew too much. End of chapter. The Man Who Knew Too Much by G. K. Chesterton Read by Martin Clifton for LibriVox.org Chapter 3 The Soul of the Schoolboy a large map of London would be needed to display the wild and zigzag course of one day's journey undertaken by an uncle and his nephew, or, to speak more truly, of a nephew and his uncle, for the nephew, a schoolboy on a holiday, was in theory the god in the car, or in the cab, tram, tube, and so on, while his uncle was at most a priest dancing before him and offering sacrifices. 
To put it more soberly, the schoolboy had something of the stolid air of a young duke doing the grand tour, while his elderly relative was reduced to the position of a courier, who nevertheless had to pay for everything like a patron. The schoolboy was officially known as Summers Minor, and in a more social manner as Stinks, the only public tribute to his career as an amateur photographer and electrician. The uncle was the Reverend Thomas Twyford, a lean and lively old gentleman with a red, eager face and white hair. He was, in the ordinary way, a country clergyman, but he was one of those who achieve the paradox of being famous in an obscure way, because they are famous in an obscure world. In a small circle of ecclesiastical archaeologists, who were the only people who could even understand one another's discoveries, he occupies a recognised and respectable place and a critic might have found even in that day's journey at least as much of the uncle's hobby as of the nephew's holiday. His original purpose had been wholly paternal and festive, but like many other intelligent people he was not above the weakness of playing with a toy to amuse himself on the theory that it would amuse a child. His toys were crowns and mitres and croziers and swords of state, and he had lingered over them, telling himself that the boy ought to see all the sights of London. And at the end of the day, after a tremendous tea, he rather gave the game away by winding up with a visit in which hardly any human boy could be conceived as taking an interest. An underground chamber, supposed to have been a chapel, recently excavated on the north bank of the Thames, and containing literally nothing whatever but one old silver coin. But the coin, to those who knew, was more solitary and splendid than the Koh-i-Noor. It was Roman, and was said to bear the head of St. Paul, and round it raged the most vital controversies about the ancient British church. It could hardly be denied, however, that the controversies left Summers Minor comparatively cold. Indeed, the things that interested Summers Minor, and the things that did not interest him, had mystified and amused his uncle for several hours. He exhibited the schoolboy's startling ignorance and startling knowledge, knowledge of some special classification in which he can generally correct and confound his elders. He considered himself entitled, at Hampton Court on a holiday, to forget the very names of Cardinal Wolsey or William of Orange, but he could hardly be dragged from some details about the arrangement of the electric bells in the neighbouring hotel. He was solidly dazed by Westminster Abbey which is not so unnatural since that church became the lumber room of the larger and less successful statuary of the 18th century. But he had a magic and minute knowledge of the Westminster omnibuses, and indeed of the whole omnibus system of London, the colours and numbers of which he knew as a herald knows heraldry. He would cry out against a momentary confusion between a light green Paddington and a dark green Bayswater vehicle, as his uncle would at the identification of a Greek icon and a Roman image. Do you collect omnibuses like stamps? asked his uncle. They must need a rather large album, or do you keep them in your locker? I keep them in my head, replied the nephew, with legitimate firmness. It does you credit, I admit, replied the clergyman. I suppose it were vain to ask for what purpose you've learned that out of a thousand things. There hardly seems to be a career in it, unless you could be permanently on the pavement to prevent old ladies getting into the wrong bus. Well, we must get out of this one, for this is our place. I want to show you what they call St. Paul's Penny. 
Is it like St. Paul's Cathedral? asked the youth with resignation as they alighted. At the entrance, their eyes were arrested by a singular figure evidently hovering there with a similar anxiety to enter. It was that of a dark, thin man in a long black robe, rather like a cassock, but the black cap on his head was of too strange a shape to be a biretta. It suggested rather some archaic headdress of Persia or Babylon. He had a curious black beard appearing only at the corners of his chin, and his large eyes were oddly set in his face, like the flat, decorative eyes painted in old Egyptian profiles. Before they had gathered more than a general impression of him, he had dived into the doorway that was their own destination. Nothing could be seen above ground of the sunken sanctuary except a strong wooden hut, of the sort recently run up for many military and official purposes, the wooden floor of which was indeed a mere platform over the excavated cavity below. A soldier stood as sentry outside, and a superior soldier, an Anglo-Indian officer of distinction, sat writing at the desk inside. Indeed, the sightseers soon found that this particular site was surrounded with the most extraordinary precautions. I have compared the silver coin to the Koh-i-Noor, and in one sense it was conventionally comparable, since, by a historical accident, it was at one time almost counted among the crown jewels, or at least the crown relics until one of the royal princes publicly restored it to the shrine to which it was supposed to belong. Other causes combined to concentrate official vigilance upon it. There had been a scare about spies carrying explosives in small objects, and one of those experimental orders which pass like waves over bureaucracy had decreed first that all visitors should change their clothes for a sort of official sackcloth, and then, when this method caused some murmurs, that they should at least turn out their pockets. Colonel Morris, the officer in charge, was a short, active man with a grim and leathery face, but a lively and humorous eye, a contradiction borne out by his conduct, for he at once derided the safeguards and yet insisted on them. I don't care a button myself for Paul's penny or such things, he admitted in answer to some antiquarian openings from the clergyman who was slightly acquainted with him. But I wear the king's coat, you know, and it's a serious thing when the king's uncle leaves a thing here with his own hands under my charge. But as for saints and relics and things, I fear I'm a bit of a Voltairian, what you'd call a sceptic. I'm not sure it's even sceptical to believe in the royal family and not in the holy family, replied Mr. Twyford. But of course I can easily empty my pockets to show I don't carry a bomb. The little heap of the parson's possessions, which he left on the table, consisted chiefly of papers, over and above a pipe and a tobacco pouch and some Roman and Saxon coins. The rest were catalogues of old books and pamphlets, like one entitled The Use of Serum, one glance at which was sufficient both for the colonel and the schoolboy. They could not see the use of serum at all. The contents of the boys' pockets naturally made a larger heap, and included marbles, a ball of string, an electric torch, a magnet, a small catapult, and, of course, a large pocket-knife, almost to be described as a small toolbox, a complex apparatus on which he seemed disposed to linger, pointing out that it included a pair of nippers, a tool for punching holes in wood, and, above all, an instrument for taking stones out of a horse's hoof. The comparative absence of any horse he appeared to regard as irrelevant, as if it were a mere appendage easily supplied. 
but when the turn came of the gentleman in the black gown, he did not turn out his pockets, but merely spread out his hands. I have no possessions, he said. I'm afraid I must ask you to empty your pockets and make sure, observed the colonel gruffly. I have no pockets, said the stranger. Mr. Twyford was looking at the long black gown with a learned eye. Are you a monk, he asked, in a puzzled fashion. I am a magus, replied the stranger. You have heard of the magi, perhaps? I am a magician. Oh, I say, exclaimed Summers Minor with prominent eyes. But I was once a monk, went on the other. I am what you would call an escaped monk. Yes, I have escaped into eternity. But the monks held one truth at least, that the highest life should be without possessions. I have no pocket money and no pockets, and all the stars are my trinkets. They are out of reach anyhow, observed Colonel Morris, in a tone which suggested that it was well for them. I've known a good many magicians myself in India, mango plant and all. But the Indian ones are all frauds, I'll swear. In fact, I had a good deal of fun showing them up. More fun than I have over this dreary job, anyhow. But here comes Mr. Simon, who will show you over the old cellar downstairs. Mr. Simon, the official guardian and guide, was a young man, prematurely grey, with a grave mouth which contrasted curiously with a very small, dark moustache with waxed points that seemed somehow separate from it, as if a black fly had settled on his face. He spoke with the accent of Oxford and the permanent official, but in as dead a fashion as the most indifferent hired guide. They descended a dark stone staircase, at the floor of which Simon pressed a button, and a door opened on a dark room, or rather a room which had an instant before been dark, for almost as the heavy iron door swung open, an almost blinding glaze of electric lights filled the whole interior. The fitful enthusiasm of Stinks at once caught fire, and he eagerly asked if the lights and the door worked together. Yes, it's all one system, replied Simon. It was all fitted up for the day His Royal Highness deposited the thing here. You see, it's locked up behind a glass case, exactly as he left it. A glance showed that the arrangements for guarding the treasure were indeed as strong as they were simple. A single pane of glass cut off one corner of the room, in an iron framework let into the rock walls and the wooden roof above. There was now no possibility of reopening the case without elaborate labour, except by breaking the glass which would probably arouse the night watchman, who was always within a few feet of it, even if he had fallen asleep. A close examination would have shown many more ingenious safeguards, but the eye of the Reverend Thomas Twyford, at least, was already riveted on what interested him much more, the dull silver disc which shone in the white light against a plain background of black velvet. St. Paul's Penny, said to commemorate the visit of St. Paul to Britain, was probably preserved in this chapel until the eighth century, Simon was saying in his clear but colourless voice. In the ninth century it was supposed to have been carried away by the barbarians, and it reappears after the conversion of the northern Goths in the possession of the royal family of Gothland. His Royal Highness, the Duke of Gothland, retained it always in his own private custody, and when he decided to exhibit it to the public, placed it here with his own hand. It was immediately sealed up in such a manner. Unluckily, at this point, Summers Minor, whose attention had somewhat strayed from the religious wars of the ninth century, caught sight of a short length of wire appearing in a broken patch in the wall. He precipitated himself at it, calling out, I say, does that connect? 
It was evident that it did connect, for no sooner had the boy given it a twitch than the whole room went black, as if they had all been struck blind, and an instant afterward they heard the dull crash of the closing door. "'Well, you've done it now,' said Simon, in his tranquil fashion. Then, after a pause, he added, "'I suppose they'll miss us sooner or later, and no doubt they can get it open, but it may take some little time.' There was a silence and then the unconquerable Stinks observed, "'Rotten that I had to leave my electric torch.' "'I think,' said his uncle, with restraint, "'that we are sufficiently convinced of your interest in electricity.' Then, after a pause, he remarked more amiably, "'I suppose if I regretted any of my own impedimenta, it would be the pipe, "'though, as a matter of fact, it's not much fun smoking in the dark. "'Everything seems different in the dark.' "'Everything is different in the dark.' said a third voice, that of the man who called himself a magician. It was a very musical voice, and rather in contrast with his sinister and swarthy visage, which was now invisible. Perhaps you don't know how terrible a truth that is. All you see are pictures made by the sun, faces and furniture and flowers and trees. The things themselves may be quite strange to you. Something else may be standing now where you saw a table or a chair. The face of your friend may be quite different in the dark. A short, indescribable noise broke the stillness. Twyford started for a second and then said sharply, Really, I don't think it's a suitable occasion for trying to frighten a child. Who's a child? cried the indignant Summers with a voice that had a crow but also something of a crack in it. And who's a funk either? Not me. I will be silent then, said the other voice out of the darkness, but silent also makes and unmakes. The required silence remained unbroken for a long time, until at last the clergyman said to Simon in a low voice, I suppose it's all right about air. Oh, yes, replied the other aloud, there's a fireplace and a chimney in the office just by the door. A bound and the noise of a falling chair told them that the irrepressible rising generation had once more thrown itself across the room. They heard the ejaculation, A chimney! Why, I'll be... And the rest was lost in muffled but exultant cries. The uncle called repeatedly and vainly, groped his way at last to the opening, and, peering up it, caught a glimpse of a disk of daylight, which seemed to suggest that the fugitive had vanished in safety. Making his way back to the group by the glass case, he fell over the fallen chair and took a moment to collect himself again. He had opened his mouth to speak to Simon when he stopped and suddenly found himself blinking in the full shock of the white light, and looking over the other man's shoulder, he saw that the door was standing open. So they've got us out at last, he observed to Simon. The man in the black robe was leaning against the wall some yards away with a smile carved on his face. Here comes Colonel Morris, went on Twyford, still speaking to Simon. One of us will have to tell him how the light went out. Will you? But Simon still said nothing. He was standing as still as a statue and looking steadily at the black velvet behind the glass screen. He was looking at the black velvet because there was nothing else to look at. St. Paul's penny was gone. Colonel Morris entered the room with two new visitors. Presumably two new sightseers delayed by the accident. The foremost was a tall, fair, rather languid-looking man with a bald brow and a high-bridged nose. His companion was a younger man with light curly hair and frank and even innocent eyes. 
Simon scarcely seemed to hear the newcomers. It seemed almost as if he had not realized that the return of the light revealed his brooding attitude. Then he started in a guilty fashion, and when he saw the elder of the two strangers, his pale face seemed to turn a shade paler. Why, it's Horne Fisher. And then, after a pause, he said in a low voice, I'm in the devil of a hole, Fisher. There does seem a bit of a mystery to be cleared up, observed the gentleman so addressed. It will never be cleared up, said the pale Simon. If anybody could clear it up, you could, but nobody could. I rather think I could, said another voice from outside the group, and they turned in surprise to realize that the man in the black robe had spoken again. You, said the colonel sharply, and how do you propose to play the detective? I do not propose to play the detective, answered the other, in a clear voice like a bell. I propose to play the magician, one of the magicians you show up in India, colonel. No one spoke for a moment, and then Horn Fisher surprised everybody by saying, Well, let's go upstairs, and this gentleman can have a try. He stopped Simon, who had an automatic finger on the button, saying, No, leave all the lights on. It's a sort of safeguard. The thing can't be taken away now, said Simon bitterly. It can be put back, replied Fisher. Twyford had already run upstairs for news of his vanishing nephew, and he received news from him in a way that at once puzzled and reassured him. On the floor above lay one of those large paper darts which boys throw at each other when the schoolmaster is out of the room. It had evidently been thrown in at the window, and on being unfolded displayed a scrawl of bad handwriting which ran, Dear Uncle, I'm all right. Meet you at the hotel later on. And then the signature. Insensibly comforted by this, the clergyman found his thoughts reverting voluntarily to his favourite relic, which came a good second in his sympathies to his favourite nephew. And before he knew where he was, he found himself encircled by the group discussing its loss, and more or less carried away on the current of their excitement. But an undercurrent of query continued to run in his mind, as to what had really happened to the boy, and what was the boy's exact definition of being all right. Meanwhile, Horne Fisher had considerably puzzled everybody with his new tone and attitude. He had talked to the Colonel about the military and mechanical arrangements, and displayed a remarkable knowledge both of the details of the discipline and the technicalities of electricity. He had talked to the clergyman and shown an equally surprising knowledge of the religious and historical interests involved in the relic. He had talked to the man who called himself a magician, and not only surprised but scandalised the company by an equally sympathetic familiarity with the most fantastic forms of oriental occultism and psychic experiment. And in this last and least respectable line of inquiry he was evidently prepared to go farthest. He openly encouraged the magician, and was plainly prepared to follow the wildest ways of investigation in which that magus might lead him. "'How would you begin now?' he inquired, with an anxious politeness that reduced the colonel to a congestion of rage. "'It is all a question of a force, of establishing communications for a force,' replied that adept affably, ignoring some military mutterings about the police force. It is what you in the West used to call animal magnetism, but it is much more than that. I better not say how much more. As to setting about it, the usual method is to throw some susceptible person into a trance, 
which serves as a sort of bridge or cord of communication, by which the force beyond can give him, as it were, an electric shock and awaken his higher senses. It opens the sleeping eye of the mind. I'm susceptible, said Fisher, either with simplicity or with a baffling irony. Why not open my mind's eye for me? My friend Harold March here will tell you I sometimes see things even in the dark. Nobody sees anything except in the dark, said the magician. Heavy clouds of sunset were closing round the wooden hut, enormous clouds of which only the corners could be seen in the little window, like purple horns and tails, almost as if some huge monsters were prowling round the place. But the purple was already deepening to dark grey. It would soon be night. Do not light the lamp, said the Magus with quiet authority, arresting a movement in that direction. I told you before that things happen only in the dark. How such a topsy-turvy scene ever came to be tolerated in the Colonel's office, of all places, was afterward a puzzle in the memory of many, including the Colonel. They recalled it like a sort of nightmare, like something they could not control. Perhaps there was really a magnetism about the mesmerist. Perhaps there was even more magnetism about the man mesmerized. Anyhow, the man was being mesmerized, for Horn Fisher had collapsed into a chair with his long limbs loose and sprawling and his eyes staring at vacancy. And the other man was mesmerizing him, making sweeping movements with his darkly draped arms as if with black wings. The colonel had passed the point of explosion, and he dimly realized that eccentric aristocrats are allowed their fling. He comforted himself with the knowledge that he had already sent for the police, who would break up any such masquerade, and with lighting a cigar, the red end of which, in the gathering darkness, glowed with protest. Yes, I see pockets, the man in the trance was saying. I see many pockets, but they are all empty. No, I see one pocket that is not empty. There was a faint stir in the stillness, and the magician said, Can you see what is in the pocket? Yes, answered the other. There are two bright things. I think they are two bits of steel. One of the pieces of steel is bent or crooked. Have they been used in the removal of the relic from downstairs? Yes. There was another pause, and the inquirer added, Do you see anything of the relic itself? I see something shining on the floor, like the shadow or the ghost of it. It is over there, in the corner, beyond the desk. There was a movement of men turning, and then a sudden stillness, as of their stiffening, for over in the corner on the wooden floor there was really a round spot of pale light. It was the only spot of light in the room. The cigar had gone out. It points the way, came from the voice of the oracle. The spirits are pointing the way to penitence and urging the thief to restitution. I can see nothing more. His voice trailed off into a silence that lasted solidly for many minutes, like the long silence below when the theft had been committed. Then it was broken by the ring of metal on the floor and the sound of something spinning and falling like a tossed halfpenny. Light the lamp, cried Fisher in a loud and even jovial voice. Leaping to his feet with far less languor than usual. I must be going now, but I should like to see it before I go. Why, I came on purpose to see it. The lamp was lit, and he did see it, for St. Paul's penny was lying on the floor at his feet. Oh, as for that, explained Fisher, when he was entertaining March and Twyford at lunch about a month later, 
I merely wanted to play with the magician at his own game. I thought you meant to catch him in his own trap, said Twyford. I can't make head or tail of anything yet, but to my mind he was always the suspect. I don't think he was necessarily a thief in the vulgar sense. The police always seem to think that silver is stolen for the sake of silver. But a thing like that might well be stolen out of some religious mania. A runaway monk turned mystic might well want it for some mystical purpose. No, replied Fisher, the runaway monk is not a thief. At any rate, he is not the thief. And he's not altogether a liar, either. He said one true thing, at least, that night. And what was that? inquired March. He said it was all magnetism. As a matter of fact, it was done by means of a magnet. Then, seeing they still looked puzzled, he added, It was that toy magnet belonging to your nephew, Mr. Twyford. But I don't understand, objected March. If it was done with the schoolboy's magnet, I suppose it was done by the schoolboy. Well, replied Fisher reflectively, it rather depends which schoolboy. What on earth do you mean? The soul of the schoolboy is a curious thing, Fisher continued in a meditative manner. It can survive a great many things besides climbing out of a chimney. A man can grow grey in great campaigns and still have the soul of a schoolboy. A man can return with a great reputation from India and be put in charge of a great public treasure and still have the soul of a schoolboy waiting to be awakened by an accident. And it is ten times more so when to the schoolboy you add the sceptic who is generally a sort of stunted schoolboy. You said just now that things might be done by religious mania. Have you ever heard of irreligious mania? I assure you it exists very violently, especially in men who like showing up magicians in India. But here the sceptic had the temptation of showing up a much more tremendous sham nearer home. A light came into Harold March's eyes as he suddenly saw, as if afar off, the wider implication of the suggestion. But Twyford was still wrestling with one problem at a time. Do you really mean, he said, that Colonel Morris took the relic? He was the only person who could use the magnet, replied Fisher. In fact, your obliging nephew left him a number of things he could use. He had a ball of string, an instrument for making a hole in the wooden floor. I made a little play with that hole in the floor in my trance, by the way, with the lights left on below. It shone like a new shilling. Twyford suddenly bounded on his chair. But in that case, he cried in a new and altered voice, why then, of course, you said a piece of steel. I said there were two pieces of steel, said Fisher. The bent piece of steel was the boy's magnet. The other was the relic in the glass case. But that is silver, answered the archaeologist in a voice now almost unrecognisable. Oh, replied Fisher soothingly, I dare say it was painted with silver a little. There was a heavy silence, and at last Harold March said, But where is the real relic? Where it has been for five years, replied Horn Fisher, in the possession of a mad millionaire named Van Damme in Nebraska. There was a playful little photograph about him in a society paper the other day, mentioning his delusion, and saying he was always being taken in about relics. Harold March frowned at the tablecloth. Then, after an interval, he said, I think I understand your notion of how the thing was actually done. According to that, Morris just made a hole and fished it up with a magnet at the end of a string. Such a monkey trick looks like mere madness, but I suppose he was mad, partly with the boredom of watching over what he felt was a fraud, though he couldn't prove it. 
Then came a chance to prove it, to himself at least, and he had what he called fun with it. Yes, I think I see a lot of details now, but it's just the whole thing that knocks me. How did it all come to be like that? Fisher was looking at him with level lids and an immovable manner. Every precaution was taken, he said. The Duke carried the relic on his own person and locked it up in the case with his own hands. March was silent, but Twyford stammered, I don't understand you. You give me the creeps. Why don't you speak plainer? If I spoke plainer, you would understand me less, said Horne Fisher. All the same, I should try, said March, still without lifting his head. Oh, very well, replied Fisher with a sigh. The plain truth is, of course, that it's a bad business. Everybody knows it's a bad business who knows anything about it. But it's always happening, and in one way one can hardly blame them. They get stuck onto a foreign princess that's as stiff as a Dutch doll. And they have their fling. In this case it was a pretty big fling. The face of the Reverend Thomas Twyford certainly suggested that he was a little out of his depth in the seas of truth. But as the other went on speaking vaguely, the old gentleman's features sharpened and set. If it were some decent morganatic affair, I wouldn't say. But he must have been a fool to throw away thousands on a woman like that. At the end, it was sheer blackmail. But it's something that the old ass didn't get it out of the taxpayers. He could only get it out of the yank, and there you are. The Reverend Thomas Twyford had risen to his feet. Well, I'm glad my nephew had nothing to do with it, he said. And if that's what the world is like, I hope he will never have anything to do with it. I hope not, answered Horne Fisher. No one knows so well as I do that one can have far too much to do with it. For Summers Minor had indeed nothing to do with it, and it is part of his higher significance that he has really nothing to do with the story or with any such stories. The boy went like a bullet through the tangle of this tale of crooked politics and crazy mockery, and came out on the other side pursuing his own unspoiled purposes. From the top of the chimney he climbed, he had caught sight of a new omnibus, whose colour and name he had never known, as a naturalist might see a new bird or a botanist a new flower, and he had been sufficiently enraptured in rushing after it and riding away upon that fairy ship. End of chapter When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.